So you wanna watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week, we are appreciating the wonders of nature with one of the purest visual storytellers in film history, Terrence Malick. We're covering 1978's Days of Heaven, starring Richard Gere, Brooke Adams, and Sam Shepard for the second time in two weeks. Sam Shepard is on a bit of a heater, dude. He is. I believe we were talking about it before we started rolling. I'm pretty sure this is the first time we've ever had an actor back to back. Just, you know, the dart. You got to trust in the dart, man. And that seems to be what happened here. Yeah. I mean, we established that the closest we got was Bruce Willis, uh, where we did Sixth Sense and Fifth Element uh, two weeks apart. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is the first back to backer. Yeah. I think Sam Shepard's trying to position him himself as being a big dog contender for like end of the year wrap-up discussion you know because he's just uh there's some magic at work here well i'm glad you bring that up because i think we need to make a little announcement here at the beginning of the show Mm -hmm. in about six or seven weeks we are going to do a awards show for dartboard movie night we're not going to do this annually it's not going to be like a structured thing uh, in that way but in order to give us a, a decent list of movies to choose from and, you know, so that we can pick our best performances and our best, you know, picture and all of that kind of stuff, we're going to do it at the end of every 50 episodes that we do. So episode 51 of the show is going to be the Dartboard Movie Night Awards show. And we, as to, as to be, as yet untitled, but yeah, we'll, untitled. We'll, come, we'll come up with a good, good title between now and then. I pitched the title to Drew that it was just terrible, but I liked it. It still might be it. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll keep it hid for yeah. now, yeah. much like we will with the categories, too. We've got some really fun categories, some that are a little off the beaten path. There are kind of the more traditional what you would expect from an Academy Awards, but then there are several that are kind of more specific to our style and things we like to talk about on our show. So it should be a lot of fun, and it should be said, too, that even though it is our 51st episode, it's going to not have a number to it. So when we get back to our regularly scheduled programming, that'll be 51, and then we'll do another top 50 when we hit 100. So I'm really glad that we're not sticking a pin on it on a, like at a calendar level. You know, it's not like every February we do this. I think it's cool that we're doing it every 50, which obviously should be about once a year, just with 52 Roughly, weeks a year yeah. and all that shit. But it's, we, it's, we I have think it's bonus episodes. We have chin wags mm-hmm. that kind of throw off our schedule a little bit. So, yeah. um, you know, just in order to not be trying to, to compile this from like, you know, just a few, few movies, you know, I think 50 is going to give us a, a decent uh, chunk to choose from. But uh, yeah, Sam Shepard, he's eking his way into the big dog of the year list. Yeah, dude, he's, 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 he's playing his little game. Two in, a, two in a row. Not to spoil a category, but I think uh, based on how we talk about big dogs, it's definitely, it, it should be obvious that that's going to be one of them. Yeah, anyone who's a fan of the show unless those we love, big dog. Fun yeah. category. Let's do a quick board review here of where we sit with the current board. 
At number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. Number two, Akiru. Number three, M. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Days of Heaven, tonight's episode. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, The Hateful Eight. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Dirty Harry. Number 17, Titan. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, The Terminator. Cleanest rating yet, dude. Not Very bad. Well Not bad. Yeah, beautiful. Pretty happy with it. You want to do a quick streaming check for us on Days of Heaven? For sure. 1978's Days of Heaven is currently available through Canopy, which you can actually get through like a, what is it, a library pass? Yeah, it's free if you have a library card and you can even just sign up for the, like, at least here in Denver, you can just sign up for a digital uh, library card and that gives you access as well. Very cool. And then if you don't have a library card or don't want to deal with Canopy, it's pay to rent a variety of places. So usual suspects there, Amazon and all that stuff, couple of bucks, you could check out this, this film. Yeah. And... It's another one of those bittersweet moments, Drew, where we have the second to last OG comes mm. off the board. I don't know how I feel about it. Always kind of, you know, complicated when we hit these. But I do want to ask you, this is a Drew pick. How did you hear about this movie and what led to you putting it on the board as part of our original crop of 20? When we first were putting our list together, when we, we started the show, I had really recently watched Badlands for the first time. So Malik was fresh in my mind. And in addition to that, I had purchased the Criterion disc of The New World. Terrence Malik was just on the mind, you know? And I, I had seen Thin Red Line years ago in college. So, you know, it, it was just a filmmaker that I really admired and wanted to, to uh, deepen my knowledge of. And to me, Terrence Malick is such a singular voice as a filmmaker that I felt like it would make for a good board edition because you know a Terrence Malick movie when you see one. And I think that makes for interesting discussion. And, and on top of that, you know, this movie is talked about for the production aspect of it. So I thought the story of how this movie came about and how it was made uh, would make for, for a good conversation as well. So there were a lot of factors, but really it was just, I want to watch another Terrence Malick movie. And a lot of people consider this his masterpiece. So uh, yeah, I was just, it, it was one that I've been, been wanting to watch for a long time. So, but it's been sitting on the board for close to a year at this point. Yeah, dude, it's crazy. And so just to confirm, you had seen Badlands, you had seen Thin Red Line, and you had seen A New World mm -hmm. before kind of putting this on the board. Have you seen any additional or is it still like beyond that point or is it still just those three until this week for Malik? It still was just those three uh, for Malik at, at that point. But um, watching this, I now am, am eager to go check out The Tree of Life, which, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of like... Most people, I feel like that that are big Malik fans, say it's either Days of Heaven or that as his his best film. So I'm excited to check that out. The New World absolutely blew me away when I saw it the first time. This is just another another like spur in my ass to to go watch the rest of his filmography. Well, we're already kind of into the discussion of Terrence Malik, and I guess. I wanted to ask you, what is your background with Terrence Malick? Have you seen any of his films before? And yeah, where, what, what's your feelings on him? I have never seen a Terrence Malick movie before this week. 
And I was kind of surprised because he's a name that I've heard a lot, you know, just through the years and seeing interviews with actors I really like and admire. His his name would come up a lot and people would ask these actors, what's it like working with Terrence Malick, you know, and stuff like that. And I was like, who is this guy? Who is this? According to how I'm hearing people talk about him, this very unique and distinct filmmaker. He's very revered in Hollywood, for sure. Yeah. For this week, I, I pulled up his filmography and was kind of like seeing what he had done. I was like, oh, shit, I really haven't seen anything. I had seen bits and pieces of the thin red line on television. And at the time, I didn't really respond to it. I, I saw maybe 10 minutes of it. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, but I just dropped it and moved on. I was not interested in what appeared to be another rehashing of a Pocahontas type story. So when A New World came out, I wasn't interested. I just kind of didn't want to see it. I remember the trailer for The Tree of Life and seeing Brad Pitt in a light that I had never really seen him before. And that looked interesting. And I recently remembered two things. I remember Brad Pitt on Inside the Actors Studio and Lipton asked him, what is it like working with Terrence Malick? And he said, you know, he's just he's just a guy catching butterflies, man. He's just that's that's his approach to filmmaking. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And that stuck with me. I saw that like when we were in New Zealand when I was like 21. And then more recently, Colin Farrell did Hot Ones, which is a great episode if anyone hasn't seen that. And he was asked about working with Terrence Malick. What a lovely Malick. gentleman. Dude, just the just the man, dude. Just the loveliest. Just 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 the best. And he was asked by the host of Hot Ones, Sean Evans, about what's like working with Terrence Malick. And he was like, you know, you got to get used to it because like you'll be in the middle of a scene and he'll literally turn the camera away from you to shoot like a bird that's like flying by or whatever. Because he's just like this very, uh, I don't even know what the word would be. It's not ADD. That's not it at all. But he's very open to whatever opportunity the world is providing him in that moment to capture so it seemed based on this anecdote so i was well really and that's intrigued. and that's not limited to the actors mm-hmm. in the scene is i think the point it's like yeah what what is happening in the environment where they are shooting that he wants to capture in that moment yeah and it could be th- anything it could be anything so i was very intrigued and when you put this on the board i was excited i was like malik that's right that's that guy i've heard so much about i don't i've never seen any of his movies Something recently made me want to put Badlands on the board. I think I heard people talking about it or whatever, uh, but I haven't gotten around to that yet. I'm glad we didn't because I normally don't like having two by the same director on the board if we can help it. Badlands will get up there for me someday, but very minimal, like anecdotal relationship to Malik for me personally. I've heard people talk about him and I've been excited to check him out and I was happy that we, we hit it this week and I'm looking forward to chatting about it, dude. Yeah, for sure. Overall, Drew, what did you think of Days of Heaven? How did it stack up to the other Maliks? And how did you react to this film? Well, it was a classic dartboard movie night scenario where I think the first time I watched it, I wasn't maybe in the perfect headspace for it. Um, you know, I, I've been dealing with some anxiety and stuff I don't mind saying on the air. And, and it's yeah, it definitely like I had a, that, yeah. uh, had a day where, you know, I, I felt like I needed to get this done. And I think that's the wrong headspace to go into a movie like this for, with. That's not to say that I disliked the movie by any means. I didn't. I, I still thought it was great on that first viewing. But 
upon second viewing and removing any expectations and removing and, and watching it in a better headspace, which was this morning, um, I just I just absolutely adored it. I don't know where this sits in terms of my my Malik rankings right now. I think I need to give it a little bit more time. I think for me, number one, in terms of just my my just being head over heels for for the movie the first time I saw it was The New World. I think that movie is just unbelievable. It, it just it hits every mark for me in terms of what I want out of a movie like that. But that being said, this movie is inching really, really close to it. It's it's a movie that when you watch it the first time, it can feel a little slight on first viewing, you mm. know? Um, but when you really just let it simmer and, 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 and start to just drink in the visuals and not worry about what, where it's going or what it wants to do or what it's trying to say, and you just let it just kind of wash over you, it is a intoxicating viewing experience. We've used that before in the, on the show, and I think this movie fits that description to a T. How did you feel about it as, as your first Malick film? I was struggling to find another word beyond intoxicating, because like you're saying, we do use that. It's the perfect word for how I feel about this movie. Now, I will say for you, would you say strong like or open love? On oh, open second love. View? On open second love view. now. So yeah. you're at open love with it now. It's, it's, like, it's like close to a perfect movie. It's like, it's, it's so fucking good. I think it's, it's, uh, it's a love for me as well. Okay, like, great. I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I will say it is not the type of movie I would be in a rush to recommend to casual film people. Like if, if I, I have friends. I think I agree. Yeah. If like if I have friends who like I'm quick to be like, what? You haven't seen The Matrix? You got to see it. You got to see it. Right. Like it's not that type of movie. Right. This is it is a very unique rhythm and it is a very unique experience. But I loved it. And as it started on first viewing, I was like, wait, is this dull? But then I kind of just slinked in my chair a little bit and it almost got me stoned. And it's so unbelievably gorgeous. And the things just string together and we get this American kind of tragic story that just, it's like a novel. It's well, not yeah, really it's, like it's, a film. It's like the futility of, of, trying to find purpose as a human being in a lot of ways and just like like the the awe-inspiring power of just nature and how small and infinite you know infinitesimally yeah. small that we are as human beings but then also the beauty of what we do when we're here and sure. the, the, the 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 beauty of our of our ceremonies and our, the things we do for fun and the way we express joy. Like, like it, it's this interesting balance of like how small we are in the face of nature to a degree or when locusts descend or whatever it is, but also the beauty of that smallness and the little things we do together. It's so it does have, I think a really, even though it's a dark film and it goes into some really dark territory, there is this appreciation for the beauty of being alive and the the beauty of life in general, whether it be yeah. human or nature or plant or animal or whatever, there's this there's this deep appreciation for the beauty of these moments. And when the characters move away from that, that's when bad things start happening, I think. That's like when they when they get 
selfish or envious or they start they They're start wrapped losing, up in their own shit yeah when they start l- losing sight of the beauty of the moment and they get you know they start dipping into that sort of gray area is when things kind of start going haywire haywire and um yeah i i just loved it it, it it's again it reminded me of like a, a cormac mccarthy novel or something i mean cormac mccarthy is a novelist who most I would say for our generation, most people associate No Country for Old Men with him. That that was the book he penned. But a lot of his books I've read, he has a a Western-based trilogy. um, And I read that when I was younger. And it's kind of like Hemingway-esque with a sort of like long sentences. And it's very blunt. And it's very... um, It's all dramatic, but it kind of has a no-nonsense approach to it. And this movie kind of reminded me of that. Like in terms of... Not the visual aspects necessarily, but the story we get of like this uh, couple masquerading as a, a brother and sister pair going out west and kind of seeing this wealthy person that they have a opportunity to kind of inherit some of their money and all this stuff. It just seemed like such a classic American story. And I'm sure we'll get to it. It is just shot so beautifully and so many times throughout the movie I was just like saying aloud dear god holy hell like what a shot like I just couldn't couldn't not appreciate that element to it and it is unique my roommate Bridget was kind of half watching it next to she was reading and kind of like poking her head up from time which to time which honestly is kind of not a way to watch this movie no no and she was like this seems stupid and I was like it's not though like I could see why someone would think that and and I will say she's got good taste. I trust her taste. But like, I could, I was like, it's you gotta, you have to really let it wash over you, and you have to get into its gear. And if you do, it's it's really good. This is a awesome. movie. This is a movie that you need to give yourself a theater experience at home if you want to appreciate it. You need mm-hmm. to put the phone down. You need to shut the lights off. You need to focus entirely on what's going on because. The thing about Terrence Malick is he is, in a lot of ways in my mind, the ultimate visual storyteller. Everything that he is doing, all of the purpose behind his his filmmaking, all of the purpose behind his storytelling comes from the visuals. It's not about what is being said. It is not about what's being done necessarily. It is all with how he's using his camera and what he wants to show you. And I think if you spend any amount of that time distracting yourself with you know your phone or or outside you know any distraction whatsoever you're you're missing the point yeah the the thing that maybe didn't work as well for me on first viewing on second viewing really just clicked entirely with me which is the fact that this movie is shot from a child's perspective and it's the you know the wonder and the awe and the um you know, you kind of you said something along the lines of like just the the uh, you know it's dealing with dark subject matter, but it's not approaching it with like a dark lens necessarily. And yeah. I think it's very that's, matter of fact. I think yeah, it's weird. But I think like, and we'll get to the production and, and kind of how this movie was put together because that's fascinating in and of itself. But it wasn't originally intended to be narrated by the child character, but it makes so much sense watching the movie that you're watching it through her eyes. You're, you're only, you know, you're getting this innocent perspective of these dark subjects. You're getting the, this wide eyed, you know, just 
this character who's just drinking in her experience and not, you know, there's really no color of like, why is this person doing this? Or, or, you know, you know, what is the motivation here? It's just like, this is happening. This is just happening. And then this happened. And then this happened. I was a little sad about that. And then, yeah, just like, it's, it's, again, it's very, it's so non-judgmental of its characters and of their actions and of their, even though they're doing despicable things things at times. Yeah. And it's just like, it's kind of like, yeah, that was too bad. Like it just has this interesting frankness to it that is very uh yeah it's frankness but it's also innocence yeah yes exactly it's it's like it's not vilifying anybody and 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 a lot of people like make some really bad choices and a few characters kind of get what's coming to them in a way to a degree but the movie's not wagging its finger at anybody it's really it's really fascinating in that way i think yeah it's it's i think it's kind of just pointing out the inherent stupidity in in just getting wrapped up in our shit and just, mm-hmm. you know, just like it's, it's saying, stop, stop looking at this. Just like, just yeah. look at this, look at, yeah. look at what I want to show you, which is this unbelievable sunrise or this, you know, yeah. this dog playing in the water or, you yeah. know, like, look at this, look at this man tap dancing. That's yeah. what life's about. Dance around the fire to the person playing the, the violin and, and just like, and just have fun. Don't worry about the big house on the hill. Leave that alone. I think that's something that kind of gets lost in the conversation of Malik. Maybe because people see his films as being so artistic or so artsy fartsy that like, mm-hmm. they they kind of miss the forest for the trees, which is just the, like, this man loves the earth and just the, like the beauty of the world that we live in. And it's like, you know, he wants to, he really like in, in all of his movies, he he's contrasting this natural beauty with the darkness of humanity. But he's, but like you said, he's not, he's no part of it is like, look at how evil we are as human beings. We should go fuck off. Like he's not Ridley Scott, like, you know, wagging his middle finger at all of humanity for existing. You know, he, he's, He's like, we exist, and we should appreciate the fact that we exist. That's really all that we should care about, is just that we're here, and we, we should make the best out of this, and look at all the beauty that you have around you. That seems to be a through line, then, through all of his movies. Because like Absolutely. I said, this is the only one for me. So, And I had heard, based on the anecdotes I had heard, that I guess that, but you're saying definitively, like based on the ones you've seen, they all have that sort of love of nature and its combination with with human existence well yeah i mean i'll just run through a couple of them just and and this is not spoiler at all like Mm -hmm. like this is just basic premises of the movie but like badlands is about a it's kind of like a bonnie and clyde type story of like two young people who go on a murder spree but it's narrated by the the sissy spacek character the 15 year old girl who's part of this couple and it's a very innocent just wide-eyed kind of you know look at at that experience then you also have like the thin red line where you're covering uh, Guadalcanal, uh, a really brutal battle in World War II. He's using his camera to show you alligators and and like the the beauty of the landscape that they're they're fighting in. And he's you know he's contrasting the darkness of the war with that. Then you've got the new the new world where it's like white people conquering the these native peoples of america and like claiming a land as theirs and you know it's it's like it's all about that that push and pull between humanity and nature he's always doing this kind of stuff and it, and it's mm. it's really really powerful to me i wanted to ask you to and you you answered at least part of it how 
often does he use voiceover based on so on the, much. the ones you've seen? All oh, of his all movies. Of, all of his much. movies have voiceover. Interesting. Yeah, I uh, I reject people who completely write off voiceover as lazy. At times it is. Well, yes, if, it's, if it's expository, if it's like yeah. that's all it's doing, then yeah. But there, yeah. there's a purpose behind this. But yeah, voiceover can be fantastic. And having only seen this one, I loved it in this movie. I thought the voiceover was a, was a fantastic touch. And I'm interested to see more of his stuff. If, well, it sounds like it's it, vindicating you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if it it's all it's just all making sense. Yeah. All the puzzle pieces are coming together. I have this movie that I just saw. I have the Brad Pitt story, I have the Colin Farrell story, and I have what you have told me about this guy. It's like, okay, so this is something that he just does. He likes to go into the woods with his camera, get his actors and and not even the woods, just nature, shoot what's going on with the actors, but then be open to whatever the earth provides him around it at the same time. And it's just a really, it seems like a fascinating way to go about making films. It seems very loose. And, you know, I would, I would wonder like, okay, so if this director is as interested in, in a bird flying by as to what his actor is going to be doing, like, how is he going to be with his actors? Is he going to be like a, someone we have panned in the past on this show, like a George Lucas type who just doesn't seem to have a good connection with his, his actors. I didn't get that I impression defend George at all. Lucas, but yes, I, I know. You do. Mean. You think he has a good connection with his no, actors? No, no, I no, like no. that's George not what Lucas, I mean. I just mean like in terms of dialogue, I, I don't, I don't, it doesn't bother me nearly as much as it bothers a lot of other people. But uh, say what you will about George Lucas, whether, <laughs> whether pro or anti in terms of how he deals with performers. I was surprised that the performances here are so good. And with his kind of interesting approach to making movies, again, I was worried that maybe he wouldn't really be in connection with his actors. Maybe he would be more distracted with what's going on around him, and maybe he'd be too much a documentarian and too much a nature filmer to not connect with the humanity of what's going on on screen. And that did not occur at all in this movie, in my opinion. Well, I, I will say that not all actors that have worked with Malik have enjoyed that experience. Like that, that is very well documented. Like Christopher Plummer talks or, or talked before he passed away uh, so much shit about Malik after working with him on the new world, because he was furious that Malik would do exactly what Colin Farrell talked about where, you know, uh, Plummer, who's this, uh, you know, Shakespearean British actor who just was trained in the old theater ways, you know, mm-hmm. is delivering this beautiful monologue and Malik is, <laughs> is, you know, pulling away from him. And he's just like, what are you fucking doing? Like, I'm, yeah. you're, you're ruining the work right now. Like, yeah. I think it was, I've been watching a lot of the, um, the Hollywood Reporter roundtables, you know, that they do every year for the Oscars. Yep. I love those, by the way. And there was one years ago, I, I didn't watch this recently, so I, I'm, I'm not fresh on it, but I distinctly remember Christopher Plummer bringing up exactly that. Like he calls Malik out by name and is like this fucking hack who like ruined my my monologue, you know, so there's stuff like that. And, you know, the other part of Malik's process is that and the process that he developed on this movie, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, is that he just shoots and shoots and shoots. And there's never really a structure to the story while he's shooting it. He finds it in the edit. And so, you know, there are actors who have spent weeks and weeks and weeks on set filming stuff that were almost entirely cut out of his movies. Like a perfect example is Adrian Brody. Um, 
in the original shooting script for Thin Red Line, he was the main character. And he does not have one line of dialogue in the Thin Red Line. <laughs> so it's like like that kind of shit. And like George Clooney got like w- w- freaked out because he had a bunch of scenes in Thin Red Line and got cut down to one scene. Not that he was mad. He was just like, Terry, take me out of the movie. Like, like I'm just going to be distracting at this point. Why are you keeping me in for this one scene? Yeah. I mean, I could understand how in the ways in which it could be frustrating but from the outside looking in and from us as just film buffs taking this in there's this really interesting dichotomy i think where there's this lack of holiness to like this is the shot this is what the actor is doing but then at the same time there's this great holiness of like we have to be open to what is what is here so it's this interesting sort of like what do you mean it's all about you, Christopher Plummer? Like you could say that again. We're never going to see that bird fly again, by again or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like, Well, to add on to what you're saying, I think it's like people have this, this idea of Terrence Malick as like the most pretentious, the most artsy because of how he, he puts his movies together. But like I side 100% with what you're saying, which is the opposite of that, which is just like there is no pretension in this. There, It's just like he's letting this thing breathe and just like he's letting the environment you know tell him what he wants to tell you know it's it's just like i don't know it's like i i don't disagree that it's artsy because it definitely is but it's artsiness without pretension i and yeah. I, and i don't know yeah. how he how he threads that needle. i agree it's it's without like it doesn't seem like he cares about people's egos like you know, that's no. like yeah. yeah, and and there's something really refreshing about that. It's like it's I don't completely give a shit. egoless. Yeah, and I'm not saying he he is totally bitter in this way, but I'm thinking like, I don't give a shit that George Clooney's a big star. This movie has changed. He's no longer the focal point. I'm sorry. Like, and I like this speech, seat. and it and it complements yeah. what else, the other stuff I'm trying to do in the movie. Yeah, and it's just like yeah, you know, I'm not cutting out the movie entirely, but sorry, this is this is what it is now, based on what we've captured, and we're letting it grow organically. Well, I want to talk, I, I think this is the, the perfect time to launch into just how this movie was made and how this kind of developed that style for him. So when they set out to make this movie, they had a script, they had a, you know, a, a full story planned out. They had, you know, the, just, you know, everything that a normal movie would go into a shoot with, right? And they got a couple of weeks into filming and Malik didn't feel like it was working. It just, it, it wasn't what he wanted it to be. And he essentially, and, and keep in mind, this is his second major film. Uh, he probably had some shorts and stuff that he did. I'm not, I'm not totally sure, but it was Badlands and then this. It's 1976, three years after Badlands came out. They go to shoot it. It's not working. And he just says, fuck it. Throws the script out the window. And he says, we're just going to shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and we'll find it in the edit. And first of all, how the fuck he maintained financing for the film after that is mind-blowing to me, uh, that he made that choice and people just went with it. Um, apparently, one of the producers mortgaged his house to keep the movie afloat, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, but that's him developing this whole you know organic filming technique, and they just shot millions of feet of film for this this movie, and just he would he would just film capture it and then say I'll find it later and they spent two years editing this movie to get it to where it is 
and it's a 90 minute movie. It's a short movie. It's not, it's not like, you know, like it's not like a three hour epic that he pulled out of this, out of that amazingly huge pile of uh, footage that he pulled. uh, He, he only took 90 minutes of it and, and put this together. It's just, it's just a crazy technique. And then I, I also want to kind of like, this may lead us into kind of the cinematography talk because, you know, we've been saying over and over again, how beautiful this movie is, but really you will not know until you see it, just how gorgeous it is. And the reason for that is they basically shot the vast majority of this movie for 20 minutes a day because they would only be able to shoot during magic hour, which for those who don't know is just kind of like when the sun is setting, you get this beautiful painterly, you know, quality to the world where, you know, you get the the oranges in the clouds and the, you know, the shadows that are cast on the mountains just create this, this depth uh, appearance. And, you know, it's just like, it's the most beautiful time of day to shoot any sort of photography. In reality, that magic hour, quote unquote, is really about 25 minutes of the day. And so they would get ready, set up a shot, and then they would shoot for 20 minutes. And when, when the sun went down, they were done. <laughs> like, that is like 75% of the time shooting this movie, which is insane. The, the idea of doing that in t- t- like today's Hollywood landscape is unfathomable. Yeah, it's, it's there. We've covered a couple of movies that sort of that, that play in that space. And they all were around this time. You're so right. This would not fly today, unfortunately. But Catch-22 did a similar thing where they, they would only shoot at certain times of the day to get sort of a very bright, like overhead, like blasting sort of light, as I recall. And then another movie with Heavens in it that we've covered, Heaven's Gate, they were very particular in that film of, of the lighting and when they shoot it in terms of what is like naturally happening, available light, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, yeah, it did it did happen a few times and it was in this time where like people were able to indulge in that sort of stuff or, or didn't happen after heaven's gate. We can say that definitively. Yeah. I should say though, the money people were more willing to indulge in this sort of behavior. And it should also be said that the process of capturing everything at magic hour is also to say like people weren't just like sitting around all day and doing nothing. So what they would do, what I heard anyway, is when they, the sun was at its peak and they're not going to be filming because it's not the light they're looking for. They would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and they would block the scenes on what was likely going to be happening. And they would uh, put stakes in the ground on like where the cameras would likely be. And so they would get everything nailed in and then magic hour would hit. And also it should be said they were filming in Canada near around Alberta, I guess. And in the summertime, that far north you the magic hour window stretched out to be about 40 45 minutes as oh opposed see to, I, I heard the cinematographer said that that it was only about 20 minutes that they shoot. i heard the camera operator say that they had about 40 minutes where in either way if you did it in short la short short film. amount of time yeah. but because We're you're in about Canada, like, like on a normal shoot you're doing like 10 11 hour days a lot of the time normal. yeah for sure but what they would do is when they got that window however long it was they would just run around and and hit multiple scenes. So they would go, we're going to do this one, and they bang it out, maybe two, three takes, whatever it was, and then they'd run to the next stake, the next location, they'd do the next scene. So they tried to prime themselves 
throughout the day to be ready to rock when they got the light they were looking for and just bang, 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 and just kind of nail it out, which I thought when I heard that, I was like, that's really cool. Like, they're not being lazy. They're not sitting in the field picking dandelions, and then when it gets to the right light, they go and do it. Like, they're 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 which working Which is kind of what they were doing on Heaven's Gate. <laughs> it seemed it seems like, that you know, if that, but, um, you know, they're, they're working throughout the day to put themselves in the best possible position to succeed when they have their limited window of time to try to execute what they're trying to do. So uh, when I heard that, I was like, that's just fucking cool, man. Like, that's just cool. And, and God damn, is it a beautiful movie. It really is. Um, well, shout out the cinematographer here. His name is Nestor Almendros. Um, he is a, a legend in cinematography, funny thing about him is he actually was going blind when they made this movie. Jesus, really? So what they would do is his his grip and electric team would take Polaroid pictures of like where they were going to shoot and he would uh judge the the lenses and the the you know all the camera setups that he needed based on those Polaroid pictures. Like, cause oh he couldn't God. see far enough to like his depth of field was such that he like, couldn't, couldn't like process the information through his eyes. It's crazy. Was, um, it, was it Beethoven who went deaf? Who was it? Yeah. Beethoven was yeah, a so deaf composer. Yeah. It's like, it's like the sort of Beethoven move. <laughs> like just like almost that's it's, cra- it's amazing. It's wild. But he, so he shot for the majority of the shooting schedule and then he had he had other commitments that he had to leave the production for mm-hmm. and so Haskell Wexler who's another just legend of cinematography was brought in to to finish the movie um and Haskell Wexler I I was reading uh you know he initially he's he's uncredited as a cinematographer on here Haskell um mm-hmm. he was I think his his credit on this movie is additional photography um, and he was initially upset that he didn't get a credit for cinematography or like a co-credit with, with Almendros for, for cinematography on this. Um, Nestor Almendros, we should say, won the Oscar this year for, for cinematography for this movie. And mm-hmm. Wexler was kind of pissed off at first, but he, I read something where he was saying that, you know, looking back on it, it you know, as an older man, he is very glad that he didn't have the credit on that because his realization was even though like, like I guess at the time he took a stopwatch to the movie and figured out that like 50% of the shots in the movie were his. But he said that uh, in hindsight, he was glad that he didn't get the credit because number one, Almendros was, was, you know, died shortly after this was made. Um, and he's glad that he got that recognition, but moreover Wexler was really, just replicating his style like his goal was always to do what almendros had had set out as the look for the film and actually wexler spent about a week on production with almendros there so that he could really get a feel for how he was doing this and and replicate it perfectly so yeah apparently like it sounds like he's he's you know very uh he's much more humble in his older age about it and and is is glad that it was done the way it was well, and, and, and the chameleon act that he does, that Wexler does, kind of slipping into Nestor's shoes, should really be commended. Absolutely. Because, because like, at no point does a scene feel like it was shot by somebody else. It's not disjointed at all. You're just kind of like, oh, yeah, this is all pieced together. And then after the fact, you realize it was two separate minds 
uh, one trying to duplicate the other. It's like, oh, well, that's completely invisible. Like, I had no idea that's what was going on. It all visually fits together. Mm-hmm. And it is just so, again, like I said, there were so many shots that I was just like, oh, my God, that's amazing. We could run through them. But what is cool about it, too, and this is something I heard in one of the interviews, which was interesting, was that they took this sort of French new wave style that was getting into the American film at the time with movies like Mean Streets and things like that, which was like handheld, up in your face sort of stuff. Another movie, I guess, that we covered on this show that would fit that category would be The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. You know, kind of Absolutely. gritty, get it in there, shoot it, get it done. But this was a movie that kind of took it in an interesting direction for the time where it was shooting things handheld. It was shooting things in a quote-unquote gritty style, but combining that with this unbelievably gorgeous landscape and this uh, beautiful big sky that's rich and colorful. And then you're, you're, again, fusing that with a down-and-dirty handheld approach is a really cool combo. Yeah, I think I think in terms of the visuals of this movie, it's really doing a combination of what you're talking about there with kind of the gritty handheld style and and meshing that with like Stanley Kubrick's uh, approach to Barry Lyndon, which was pure natural light, um, no no major lighting fixtures, just letting the the natural environment you know be what it is. Um, you know, it's it's like the handheld mixed with that that approach and it just it just creates this just intox we keep saying intoxicating but that's what it's, it is it's, it's the just best like word. It, you're drunk on this movie while you're watching it well i want to i want to pivot a little bit you know continuing on this this visual conversation and i want to highlight jack fisk who is the production designer on this movie and is uh you know just a legend in the in that field because i think you know, we're talking all about the natural beauty and, you know, the landscape and all this kind of stuff. And that's great. But one of the things that's so striking to me about this movie is the design of the the house in the middle of this field. And that house was a practical set that they built inside and out. They essentially just built a house for this movie in the middle of this, this wheat field. And it is such a gorgeous image that something about the way that the you know the spires of the house and the windmill on top of it and the the color the color the and colors, the way that, totally. that and the way that it just sits on this little hill like on its own it's it's like mm-hmm. you know it's almost got like a like an like an adams family or like like you know psycho like house on the hill look but it's but it's in a in a really like gorgeous way that image is so fucking beautiful and jack fisk is is just a legend for this alone in my opinion just the 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 way that he put that together and not to mention just on top of that his work with just the interiors and the the you know the lived in quality of everything i should mention that that jack fisk uh was the production designer on both the master and there will be blood as well Whoa. Um, so, that makes you know, sense because i 100% saw 100 sense i saw a lot of commonality with um there will be blood for sure with shots of the train and different things like that and yeah so that adds up completely and then I remember hearing that The Master is a film that PTA found in the edit. Was it, he? I've heard him say that that was one that they really had to get in the room and kind of realized what they had. Um, 
and I could see that it, it mm-hmm. does seem kind of malachy in a way, in a in a very kind of loose. And it's about hum- being alive. It's not so much about plot. It's about um, the complexities of of existence. Um, yeah, that's that's. I didn't know he that that was Fisk. That's awesome. Well, he and, also he also worked on another movie that's uh, left on the board. Ooh, can you guess which one? Sp- okay, um, is it a period piece? I'll ask that. Honestly, I don't even know. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna look at the board. I'm gonna try to guess. Operation Condor. You know, it's not. <laughs> believe it or not. What? Uh, yeah. No. no it's. No, no. Uh, me, it's the me. straight story. Oh my God! The other OG. The yeah. last OG. Um, cool to see that connection there, and obviously, production designers are important on any type of story, but specifically thinking about period pieces. And also, like, you could say the same thing about costume and wardrobe. That department um, is, is absolutely crucial. And it's kind of, in some ways, a thankless role. Because if they do their job well, you don't notice it. And everything just looks real. It looks, it looks right. And you just go about your day, visually speaking, when you're watching the movie. Mm-hmm. And all of that, all of those components, I think, are, are, are really well executed in this. Where it just, it feels like it's that time. It feels like that. And... You and I in the pre-chat were talking about Robert Eggers. He's another one of those people who is obsessive about the details of the time he's trying to capture. And Malik seems to be in that vein as well. Or I should say Eggers is in the Malik vein of really caring about, like, this has to look right. It has to, you know, this fabric needs to be the right type of fabric and things like that. I don't know if they took that that far for this movie, but it definitely appears like they did. Well, I'm excited for you to watch The New World because he is meticulous in that movie mm-hmm. about that kind of stuff. And um, yeah. to to an extent where you're just like, did you just tra- like travel in time and go film mm. this there? Because like it, 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 it's immaculate, dude. Well, well, think about that. Like it makes total sense. If you're doing a period piece, if you're doing something set in a different time, it's so clear. It's like, let's get every single detail right so that when we get out there, we can do whatever we want. Like, we know that everything else is taken care of. Like, we know no one's going to, it's not going to be a coffee cup in the shot or someone's going to be wearing the wrong thing. Like, we're going to get it all right so that once we're in the sandbox, we can do anything we want because everything is in the right place in order for us to get there. So it's like, of course, that's a cool way to do it. Like, it's a no brainer. Yeah. While we're talking about other elements of the filmmaking, we definitely have to touch on the score here. Um, mm-hmm. This is one of the all-time great scores, in my opinion. It's one that... Did, did you... Here's what I want to ask you about that. First, I will, I'll mention uh, this is a score by Ennio Morricone, uh, who most people would know as the guy who did the score for the spaghetti westerns, like uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Fistful of Dollars, that whole trilogy. Um, Once you know, upon a time in the West. You know that. Yeah, that's Ennio Morricone. Um, he's a legend in in uh, in the field, and this is one of. I, this is probably my favorite of his that I've ever heard. It's it's just a tremendous score. Mm. Did you recognize the opening theme to this movie? I did. I Could, did, and I couldn't place it. I was you know like, this why? Is something because it's not him, right? No, well, no, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I heard actually, that it's not, it's not Maricone. Isn't that well? Funny? No, no, no. What I, what I read, and I, I could be wrong on this, was that he did pull pieces of classical music and kind of integrate them into the score. 
Um, but it, it is all original. It's just, it's just, it has like snippets of classical music that have been, uh, like threaded into right. the rest of it. So what um, I had heard is that in, in the commentary anyway, someone was, uh, involved in the making of the film was saying that a piece of criticism they got is that the opening music is not Morricone's. It's something from this like, uh, other kind of classic thing. And then people were criticizing that, uh, original score by Ennio Maricone who shows up on the screen, but it's not his music that's playing at that moment. Um, so I think I that think the truth kind of, is somewhere in between there. Cause it, yeah. it, it like, it's his own composition, but it's, it's yeah. like, like the, some of the themes are, are, have been yeah. used in, in classical music. But regardless, yeah. the reason that you are probably familiar with that piece of music is that that piece of music has been used in a number of trailers over the years. Mm. Oh, it's trailer bait tune. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Yep. Any anytime you're looking for that kind of whimsical but slightly kind of uh like otherworldly quality for a trailer, like I'm I'm thinking of like a I and I and I tried to Google what trailers have used this before and I couldn't find like a list of it. But there have been multiple and I and I'm thinking of movies that, that are like kind of that Tim Burton y vibe. They they've used like this mm-hmm. this musical cue from the opening of the movie but it, yeah. when it came on i was just like that is triggering sense memory that yep. i like i i, I it, it was so, it was deja vu kind of thing i had the same thing i was like where have i heard this and that makes sense i, I wasn't able to source it but that makes sense that it, it's like kind of used in a lot of trailers and stuff and um the score outside of that uh initial wave because again there's some controversy in terms of this sh- dartboard movie night show we're not sure exactly how much of that was Morricone. could have been like 50 50 could have been zero could have been 80 percent. who knows but i know that outside of that piece which does reoccur at a point or two later in the movie everything else is certainly original and it's fascinating to think drew of some of those films you mentioned and my personal relationship with a Morricone score is like you said, the good, bit, the bad, and the ugly. I believe he did Once Upon a Time in the West, which is my favorite Western movie. Yep. And I always think of John Carpenter's The Thing. That's another a kind of iconic Morricone score. And there is another film, I don't know if you know this, on the board currently that is, that is kind of slyly a Morricone score. Do you the know Hateful what it is? Eight. Yeah. Okay. It's the second, second time he worked with Tarantino because he worked on uh, Django Unchained as well. Oh, cool. So that is the style of him I'm familiar with, which is kind of like big. Like the the score is a character in those movies. It's a really impactful element of the movie that I wouldn't say it takes it over, but it is a very present ingredient. It's, it's really there. This, I didn't know he had this in him. I had never heard him like this, where it's just so in the background it's so just kind of tinkling along and it's always just right and it's a lot of his either acoustic or string driven and it's just very uh, i mean a lot of his music is string driven even in the in the in the bolder scores but this is like it's almost like it's so much softer it's so much mellower it's so unique based on my experiences with him previously that it was very ear opening to be like oh my god this guy can do everything like he can do this sort of very kind of placid, roly-poly, unfolding type of score. And mm-hmm. then he can also do 
whistling in your face and going blah 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 like he can and he can do everything in between it seems <laughs> so i i i loved it and it's one of the best scores i've heard in a long time i can say i can fairly say and it might even be grander than that in my own estimation it has a really transportative quality to it um it's it's just like it sweeps you along and and yeah it's just it's just beautiful man it's so yeah. well done yeah i think i think um Again, beyond that opener song, I was th- hearing so many movies where I was like, oh, I think they were all really inspired by this score. Like, uh, I-, I was thinking a lot about Shawshank Redemption as I was watching this movie mm. in terms of there being voiceover by a character who speaks very plainly and very kind of uh, concisely in a way. And th- again, the way the score sounds and and the fact that it's a period piece in different things. That's obviously a film that's much more plot-driven than what we're talking about tonight, but I couldn't shake the sort of similarities in the score, and I think Shawshank was kind of playing in this direction in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. therefore, and, and after Shawshank, a lot of movies are kind of trying to copy that sound, for, certainly for the second half of the 90s. But again, it's this sort of whole standing-on-the-shoulder-of-giants idea, and... Uh, Morricone was definitely one of the OG giants. Oh, he's a giant, yeah. He's a giant for sure. I also want to just talk about, while we're talking about just the music and and the sound of this movie, um, the the usage of diegetic music in this movie, I think, is really beautiful. The main thing I'm, and this might be the only part of the movie that has it, I'm blanking off the top of my head, but the scene of them dancing around the fire to the, the bluegrassy tune that they're playing... I mean, it plays into my love of bluegrass. I'm, I'm, you know, recording today wearing a Billy Strings shirt, so you know, so it's, Denver. It's <laughs> yeah, so Denver. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of bluegrass, and that tune is just that that was it was so perfect for that moment. It has so much yeah. life and joy, and like for you know, sure. the, the the crux of bluegrass music, and the the reason that it it just resonates so strongly with me is the organic quality of it and the way that it's, it's just, there, there's no percussion. It's all just string instruments and, and, you know, people using their voices and, and just the, these just, I, I don't know. It's it just, it, it feels so of the earth to me as a, as a music style. And that scene encapsulates everything that I love about bluegrass and is like why I, you know, it gets yeah. you, you moving, you know? Yeah. And, and everything I love about Malik in general, again, he just seems fascinated with life and like, let's show this beautiful moment of it. And we've kind of touched on a little about how he does that with nature, whether he's shooting a moose or a bird or an elk or whatever he's doing. But he obviously does it with human experience, too. And that bluegrass scene around the fire was just it. it, it I loved it, too. But I like the angle you're taking about it. It's like this captures what bluegrass means to me and like the, the beauty of that style of music. The other just the dancing other time, around fire, man, just dancing. And again, I think that's the point of life. And that's what this movie's saying. Life is at its best when you're keyed in on those types of moments. And the other sort of only um kind of like in universe type of music i could think of is the harmonica player when the the person's tap dancing but you're right like that it's it's used very selectively and whenever it's done for me it really hit hard Mm -hmm. and it was just like god damn music is such a great part about being alive yeah yeah let's talk about the actors of this movie a little bit for sure 
Richard Gere is, you know, the the main uh, credited actor on this movie. I, I think it's much more of an ensemble piece. It, you know, I wouldn't even necessarily call him the star of this, but uh, but he is the biggest name in the cast. What's your background on Richard Gere, and how do you feel about him in this movie? I would definitely not say I'm a gearhead. Like, <laughs> like, like I um, I don't know if I could name a movie that he's in that's not like a romantic comedy. And I think I've just kind of dismissed him as a rom-com guy and who maybe will occasionally poke his head in the door of a thriller or something like that. Yeah, but like, like Primal Fear or something. Yeah, something like that. And I just, I don't know, I kind of just... Um, lumped him in this sort of American Hugh Grant category, which is also a little overly dismissive of Hugh Grant. I actually really Hugh dig Grant his is career. Delightful. Yeah, and I like where he's going with it these days, where he's, like, I, I, you know, he was recently in a Guy Ritchie movie. It looked like he was having a lot of fun there. His, his cameo in Glass Onion. He's in was, for, was like, 10 too. seconds, but he's great. Yeah, and he was, you know, I don't know. I just, I again, that's just how I viewed him. No, but I, I can understand yeah, why the American like, Hugh Grant. Yeah, even even if like I think that's that's a little bit uh, dismissive of of his career. I, I it's definitely dismissive un- of both of them, really, for sure. <laughs> no, and I, and I, but I definitely understand the impulse to think that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like trying to pull up Richard Gere's uh, filmography. I'll just ask you, what are some of your big hits? Because maybe that'll jar for me. Again, I'm not sure I've ever sit down and watched before this a Richard. Gere gear film soup to nuts do you have any that jump out to you you know well i'll tell you in a minute but i mean just talking about just my general opinion of gear it's weird he has a face that for some reason when i was a kid i would see him on screen and i'd be like i don't like that guy (laughs) and i don't know why i have no idea why that i had i had that thought in my head i had never seen a movie with him i had never heard him speak a word but i looked at him and i'm like i don't want to watch a movie starring that guy yeah, and I don't know why. Too, yeah, um, it's it's like the Wiley Wiggins effect. That's how I felt last last don't week like about Wiley Wiggins. I just don't just don't like him. I just don't like this guy. I don't know why he's not doing anything to offend me except for everything he's doing. <laughs> I've since watched Pretty Woman. Um, he's solid in that. He doesn't like blow me away in it. And I've also seen him in uh, Chicago the the musical right and you know um, which, i'd avoid that like the plague yeah I, I know for a fact that you will never watch that movie um, <laughs> you'll, be, you'll get it on the board someday nah it's, it's not no, a, no. it's not a board worthy movie it's it's a it's a side it's a fun movie i i had i had a good time with it but it's not a movie that like blew my mind by any means um you know i just i, I he he kind of strikes me as like a, a serviceable actor you know he's like a guy that you can put in but he just, he doesn't strike me as a guy who has just a ton of gravitas on screen. He doesn't, you know, he's like, it's weird. He's got this quiet, reserved quality to him that normally you would associate with actors who have either like this bubbling rage kind of underneath that or that the quietness is is accenting, is giving them power in some way. You know, Humphrey Bogart is a guy we've covered a couple of times on the show already, and he's not... It's not the same thing. I'm not trying to compare them, you know, as as being a one to one. But when I think about Bogart, I think about the power that he has comes from the fact that he almost never shows emotion, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And that gives him power in some way. Whereas, like with Richard Gere, for some reason, 
the more reserved kind of like quiet power doesn't translate for me. So he's not an actor that I've ever had a ton of like affection for. And I, you know, as I said, I haven't seen a ton of what he's done. Um, I, there are a few movies that with him that I would, I would like to, to check out. Um, just to confirm whether I like or dislike him. When it <laughs> still, comes to, the jury's still out. Yeah, it's still out. Yeah, I mean, this movie, I I like him in this movie. I I don't like he doesn't bowl me over by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't get any scenes to really just act. You know, like I mean, he is acting, but he's not like like he's he doesn't get a big monologue to just show off at any point. He doesn't get like these big intense close-ups that where you're just seeing this well of emotion or anything like that. Like I don't see the traditional hallmarks of like what you would point to and be like, "Oh, that's a performance," you know? I could think of a couple of moments where I felt that way. I felt okay. that it was like um do you remember the scene where he and Sam Shepard are hunting? And he has that moment of like considering to just blow Sam Shepard away and just like shoot him in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like his his face was pretty intense there. And when Sh- Sam Shepard finds out about the whole scheme that's been going on, he sees them share that kiss as they're departing, and he tries to hunt Richard Gear down in like the remnants of the burning field. Pulls out that pistol, and the look of Gear when that pistol is drawn of just like he knows. And this has come to a breaking point. Uh, I really, I really liked it. But okay. outside of those supremely dramatic moments, it was all very neutral to me. But I think it's commendable that at least theoretically he was willing to roll with Terrence Malick's style. And what they did get, I think, um, it didn't sweep me off my feet. But it is completely serviceable, and oh, there's yeah. nothing bad about it. I don't have know? any problems with the performance. I just, yeah. You know, no, I, no, it didn't sound like you did either. When we're talking generally about him as an actor, I, I just haven't had that experience with him where I'm like, whoa, this is an actor I should pay more attention to. Yeah, he is not going to be a big dog candidate for end of the year for me, but but it was good, like I, even better than fine. To say fine is dismissive. I liked it, but I wasn't over the moon. Maybe the reason that he doesn't stand out quite so much to me in this is the fact that I found Brooke Adams and Sam Shepard to be tremendous in this yeah, movie. Yeah, God, they're so good. They're and, so and they, fucking good. They have those moments where you're just you're seeing things bubbling under the surface and things that they're processing and like those two just blew me away in this. Yeah. Yeah. They're she she plays the like it's so easy for it to be a disaster, by the way. Those scenes where Sam Shepard is he notices that something is off with her and is just kind of very sincerely asking like, Oh, you seem distant. Like what's, what's going on? Are you okay? Like I'm not trying to probe. And again, to me that all seems sincere. And she has that look on her face of just, I just wish I could tell you, but I can't tell you what's going on. Yeah. And it is so easy for that to be a disaster. Like if that is overplayed or like just the idea of, I wish I could tell you, but I can't is so played out and so cliched and so many different types of stories. It's so easy for it to fail. And she, she plays it perfect. The perfect amount of seeing that on her face, but not overplaying her hand. It's, it's present, it's visible, but it's still subtle enough to not make me 
roll my eyes. It's yeah. really delicate. She has those giant Disney eyes, you know, mm-hmm. that just mm-hmm. like they're like pools that you just yeah. fall into when you're watching. For her. sure, dude. I had pretty. I I fell in love with her pretty quick in this one. You know, it's like it's like when they have that moment, right, where Richard Gere gets in a fight with one of his coworkers in the field, yeah. who kind of challenges him on the fact that they're in a relationship. He throws they throw their food at each other and they get a fight. And then it cuts to Gear and Adams underneath the train. And the camera's really focused on her. And she's smoking a cigarette. And they're having that. She's like, I'm kind of sad. Like, I was kind of hungry. And Gear, and this is a, a shout out to Gear in this scene as well. Even though the camera's not focused on him, he's really good in this scene too. He's like, you can have this p- piece of potato. And she's kind of exhaling the smoke from her cigarette and laughs through it. And it's just a really organic and real seeming human moment and laugh i was just like oh she's just a natural like she i'm just i'm buying her i'm believing her i couldn't get it out of my head the entire time i was watching her that she looks like if if you mash together parker posey and anya taylor joy like that's Mm. what she looks like to me yeah yeah i could see that yeah Yeah, totally dude because she's got those like wide set eyes that are like Uh the big you know you know eyes that that Anya Taylor-Joy has but then she has like the kind of mousier nose and like like the facial structure of, of, of Parker of Parker yeah. Posey and like the dark hair I don't know mm-hmm. man I think that you it's just it. It, it was it was driving me crazy I was just like uh, like I can't not see that anymore but she's yeah. she's brilliant in this movie and and yeah I mean I'm looking at her filmography right now and there's like there's a few other movies that that uh, I actually really want to watch that have her in it because uh, this is the first time I've ever seen her in a movie that as far as I know and um, she's in the, you know, we covered last week, The Right Stuff. She's in another Philip Kaufman movie, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, that I really like to watch. And then she's also in The Dead Zone, the Stephen King adaptation uh, with Christopher Walken, directed by David Cronenberg. Uh, both movies that I really, really want to watch. So those are both contenders for the board at some point. I would love to see any of those, and I want to see more of her. Like we, when we get to putting one of those on the board, whenever that'll be, she will be the thing I'm most excited about. Even more so than Cronenberger, who I Cronenberger, even more so than Cronenberg, who I like a lot. But like I'm so intrigued by her and seeing more of her work because she doesn't hit a fucking single false note in this movie. I don't think she is just so dialed in at every scene. I'm like, God, she's just right. Everything she's doing is right. It just seems real to me and organic, and I'm in love with it. It's a great performance. Well, and we mentioned him in the opener, but Sam Shepard in this movie is the same way for me. Like he just, he is absolutely a big dog. He blew (laughs) me away in this movie, like even more so than in the right stuff, like which, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a brilliant performance. And, and, you know, there's a reason it got nominated for an Oscar and it's, you know, just this, this stoic, you know, incredibly powerful, quiet performance. And this movie has elements of that too. This performance has elements of that, but it's it's a much sadder portrait of of that kind of stoicism. It's a much more, uh, you know, I think in a lesser movie, this character would have been portrayed as this kind of hapless guy who's getting taken advantage of. And he seems, he's not that in this movie. He's an incredibly competent person, but he's also in the face of death. He's kind of, he's indulging in, in, his desires more than maybe he would. And, and you're seeing this person let himself be swept along by, by the experience with the Abby character, the Brooke Adams character. And just the, the, 
soul-crushing look on his face when he sees Richard Gere and Brooke Adams uh, embracing and everything hits him and he finally accepts the reality of his situation. Man, I just I, I just was so taken with this performance. Yeah, dude, it was so good. And, and also all the paranoia that's that he's playing with that's being dialed up as we hit that uh, that kiss moment where he's just like he's just like something's going on like I don't know what it's like where you're from but that's not how brother and sister relate like he's starting to kind of tailspin a little when the foreman uh, character is is kind of like pointing this stuff out and he doesn't yeah. want to accept it he and... just and it's so he's so believably flawed and we've all heard stories of these types of people who are just focused on their career they get slapped in the face by mortality and they're kind of like oh shit what am i doing what am i doing all this work for i need to find what life is actually about and and he allows himself to pursue the opportunity of love for probably the first time in his life as he's kind of believes anyway that he's looking down the barrel of the gun or as that as the narrator says like staring down walking just like walking by the boneyard or was going to be in the boneyard any minute, I think she said, which was a great line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just like this guy and we feel, I feel for pretty much everyone involved except for Richard Gere through most of it. But even him, I end up feeling bad for at the end of it. Like he it kind of pulls that one over to me, like especially when he is acknowledging the ways he was at fault. But in terms of Sam Shepard in this, like, could you imagine how much less interesting this movie would be if he was just an asshole and just like a, a this like or just wealthy a guy, idiot, like I was saying, yeah, or an idiot, like you were saying, like it's just so much better that we like this guy and he is being manipulated. And also, what is something great about it, I think, is the con is not despicable. It's kind of like, oh, just ride it out. It's only going to be a year. You'll improve his life. And then afterwards we'll be well, set. I don't know. No, it's and you get like, this beautiful uh, sequence. You, you know this this montage of them. They they actually get to enjoy life. Like they've gone from this situation, and, and you know, yes, they are taking advantage of this guy. But that guy is benefiting as well. Like you're saying, like it, it's she, not. I think she it's really almost is like falling a, in love with him too. Yeah, it's almost like a mutual delusion, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just like we're all gonna just <laughs> pretend that <laughs> sounds this like is love what our in general. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like we we yeah. we're gonna pretend that the the realities of the world don't exist for a little while, and we're just gonna live in it. And then when the realities of the world do impose themselves, and they realize that, oh no, this isn't just a finite thing. This like. We, we need to either do something or accept that this is just how it's ever always going to be. Um, and that throws everything into chaos. Like, I, I think like, I just think it, it's, it's, it's such a touching way to approach this kind of story that it, and, and again, it's just, it's the Terrence Malick approach to just observing humanity. And I think it's, it's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. God. I'm so surprised to hear that he was a playwright first. <laughs> like, you know, he's, Sam his Shepherd, performances. Yeah. yeah, his performances. And I agree with you. I think this one is even stronger than the right stuff. Yeah, go back to and, our right stuff episode from last week if you want to hear a, a, a more detailed analysis of of Shepard's career. But yeah, 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 because he was a, formerly a playwright before he did any acting, and I could kind of see that in the right stuff. Because in the right stuff, he's just playing the coolest guy in the room. Like mm-hmm. that's who he is, and he he nails it. He does everything that's asked of him, and, is, and that's a really good performance too. This character is a little more complicated in some ways, and it's a little more like again, 
staring death. Actually, both characters are staring death in the face in different ways, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, like it's just different. Them very differently. Yeah. <laughs> this this is a more complicated performance in terms of what the actor is asked to demonstrate on their face and how they act sure. and all these things. He completely crushes it, and um, I love him in this movie. And another person that's just just doesn't get it wrong at any point. Love yeah. him. Like I was talking about with Richard Gere, where I haven't had that spark of inspiration to be like, whoa, I need to go check out more of this actor. I I just, I love when I do have that experience. And I'm having mm-hmm. that right now with Sam Shepard over the last couple of weeks. Me where I'm too. just like, man, this guy is just like, he's got so many speeds to him. And, and mm-hmm. like way more than I would have anticipated. You know, like yeah. I kind of, for a long time in my mind, because, like I said last week, my, my first introduction to Sam Shepard was in Black Hawk Down, where he's playing this, you know, military general, or I, I don't know his exact rank, but he's playing, the you know, this this gruff, no-nonsense kind of guy. He's a medium wig. He's not a big wig, but he's a medium wig in yeah, the Army. Yeah, something like that. Big um, cog. But he, you know, I, I just had this impression of him that he was going to be kind of a Sam Elliott type, right? Where he's kind of just playing the Marlboro Man, like kind of a, you know badass gruff you know kind of character which i don't want to like denigrate sam elliott because he's amazing in his own right and you know he's like his performance in in uh, a star is born is unreal it is so fucking good yeah. have but, you ever seen uh, the man who shot hitler and also bigfoot no no i know oh. you've mentioned this yeah, before yeah, yeah. yeah i anyway, need to, i need to watch sam that. elliott's dope but but i kind of lumped him into that category and he's not that He's he's got so much more depth to him and so many more so many more speeds and I just I I I can't wait to watch more of his stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting uh, I'm getting another crush here too with Sam Shepard and I just want to kind of say like when you mentioned how your view of him as kind of the Marlboro Man like last week's movie kind of reinforced our a little our bit misconception yeah. of him because and he's again great in that too. But we're like, oh, here he is uh, being the cool guy, the cool cowboy guy. And yeah, this is just shows that he's got a lot of subtlety going on too and a lot of depth to his performances. Yeah, yeah. Uh, while we're talking actors, I wanted to just give a quick shout out too to, I couldn't find his name online. Maybe you have it. The person who plays the older man who's kind of like Sam Shepard's. Yeah, the um, foreman that I mentioned the earlier. The foreman, yes, yes, you mentioned him. Yeah. I love that performance. It, I think it's, it's really unreal. good. Um, his name is Robert Wilkie. Or Wilk, I, it's got an E on the end. It's W-I-L-K-E. Pronounce it how you will. But uh, yeah, he he's. You want to talk about a craggy face? We've talked about oh, we've exactly. talked about good faces in the past. You read my mind. Oh, his face. <laughs> Perfect face, dude. That's what I like to see. An interesting human face, and ah, uh, he's and it. God, yeah, I like everything about him. Great. Might be face of the year. I don't think that's going to be one of our categories, but he might be facha of the year. <laughs> I don't know that that just ran up my list of awards I want to give out. I'm excited maybe, about maybe that we now. need maybe we should do a facha of the year. Yeah, which is different than Big Dog. That is different than Big Dog. Facha of the year. All right, it's going on. Cool. Uh, but yeah, that actor is is dynamite, and the 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 face he makes when he finds Sam Shepard's body in the field is just such grief and it's just a perfect just perfectly performed scene that is wordless at all it's all in the faccia and he crushes it yeah i was trying to based on that i was trying to dig into where what is faccia where does that come from it's italian right 
Well, so face in Italian is not faccia. Oh, okay. Face in Italian apparently is <laughs> vi- viso or v- yeah, I don't know how you pronounce it. I don't speak fucking Italian, but <laughs> but but it must come from faccia brute, which is an Italian word. It means brutal face, a very ugly person, usually, but not always used to describe a very unattractive oh, of, female. Of course, Buck Swope is using it wrong. How can we trust Buck Swope? <laughs> I know, but I, I kind of just I I I think it still fits because the yeah, way that we're using it is like, and and we're not calling these people ugly. It's no just it, it's like it's a face that has wear and tear on it, you know, mm-hmm. and a face mm-hmm. that just like weathered. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. that's a better word for it. It, it I, but I think it all fits with that still. Mm-hmm. Yep, I like I like yeah, and that's gonna be. Awesome. Apologies to any Italians listening to the show that we have been yeah. butchering that for the last <laughs> 43 weeks. Yeah, I'm using it wrong. Man, what are you going to do, dude? We are who we are. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, before we wrap up, Drew, I had a couple things I wanted to kick around and also wanted to hear, too, if, if there's anything that you wanted to hit that we haven't discussed yet. But I kind of alluded to it earlier. I am such a sucker for deep things and interesting ideas philosophical or philosophical or otherwise tackled very plainly and that is something that i am enamored with in morgan freeman's voiceover in the shawshank redemption we have this no nonsense like blue collar person talking about some of the complexities of life in a very simple and plain way and i feel the same way about this voiceover a lot of times like what the uh the girl says in the vo just like slaps me in the face where it's just like something that is so simple and true but also so deep and i just love writing like that and i love dialogue like that it's just it's i'm just smitten by it should be no surprise to anyone that knows jared that he loves folksy wisdom i i really do and i love (laughs) when it's expressed in dialogue and i also love when it's expressed in a book that's written from pov pov and explores it that way as well and she had a couple ones where and again she's speaking with a very uh limited amount of education the character is sure she says you're only one of the quotes is, you're only on this world once, ought to my opinion, as long as you're around, you should have it nice. And it's just like, there's something about that that's just like beautiful to me. And towards the end of the film, her VO says, um, every, no one's completely good or no one's completely bad, something along those lines. And you just got half devil and half angel in you. And it's just like, again, it's just like, that's just simple, searing truth. That's just plain as rain. Well, the laid full out quote. I, I like the full quote even better, which is nobody's perfect. There was never a perfect person around. You just have half angel and half devil in you. Yeah, and it's just like I just I just got goosebumps right now. It's just like I love that just wisdom in plain speak, and and the voiceover had a ton of that going on. So I really dig that. Um, I had a couple of things I wanted to ask you, kind of like rapid fire. What do we think of the ending of this movie? And I, are you, I go are, first. You, are we are we talking everything from Richard Gere's death onward, or are we talking post post Gear death? So it's like the fallout. We have she's kind of left at this orphanage. We have the Abbey 
character hop onto the train and like so we see her leave but then we're kind of left with the kid and she has this sort of strange additional story of like how she knew this girl once and they were friends for a time and then the credits roll and part of me loves it but part of me also says what the fuck is that so i did i wanted to know what you thought of the actual say like last 45 seconds of this movie yeah i mean i think I think it's something I need to sit with for a little while uh, longer to, to really understand how I feel about it. My initial reaction is that I don't really know why it was necessary. Um, I, I, I'm, I, like, I like what it's saying about her as a character because the kid is just a character who... She's the this push and pull between wanting the the niceties of life, but also being a free spirit who just wants to ramble and kind of you know move along. Um, so I don't know. I'm I, I'm I like it and don't like it at the same time. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I also um, I think I like it because to me it makes it seem like it's a story that's being told, and that's kind of what voiceover is essentially. A lot of the way it functions is it's like you have a narrator actually telling you a story. And the way it kind of has that additional little limb to it where it tapers off and gets a little strange, that's how people tell stories. Sometimes you throw in these little details that you don't need, like, oh, yeah, and then this person showed up and I actually became friends with them for a while. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Like, we all do that. And it makes it seem like a story. But I don't know, comp- a controversial or polarizing ending, I would think. The movie definitely anyway. loses steam around that point because you, you're yeah. following the plot and then the plot kind of gets yeah. tossed aside. And then one thing I was... Um, confused about is why are they pretending to be siblings is that ever made clear to you i don't think it's supposed to because again like being that it's coming from her perspective like the the kid's perspective um to her it's just a game she doesn't she doesn't know why he's doing it i think if we're you know if you want to dig into like what could possibly be motivating that for richard gear it seems to me that he is kind of a survivor character and any amount of attachment. Uh, but then again, he's saying that it's his sister. So it's not like he doesn't have a, a potential, uh, you know, trigger point that, that people can, can pull on, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't really, I, I couldn't really figure that out myself. It seemed to only exist for the sake of it being necessary to the story. Um, but I, I was thinking maybe it's the times, like maybe there weren't, they weren't married, so they couldn't be in an open, oh, like that's in a, a relationship openly. Yeah. Um, I thought maybe that, but anyway, it's not a huge deal, but a little, a little thing. And then, um, in terms of real positives, we, I feel like we have to talk about the locust sequence oh, and yeah. how amazing that is. And just like. I heard the story of how they made it. First of all, the way that the, the score kicks in, it just the locusts start showing up. It's like, oh God, here comes a plague. Like literally a plague is on the way. Well, there's a lot of and, biblical references in this movie. For sure. And just the the locusts swarming and the fire, they just descend into hell for like 10, 15 minutes in this movie. Literally once amazing. the flames start whipping up, it, it looks like hell. And what's when the locusts really erupt and they're everywhere... I saw this shot where the locusts are swarming all over the characters. And I was like, that, how did they do that digitally This in this age? It's crazy. And then I found out it wasn't digital. Mm-hmm. It's the coolest fucking thing. So they actually had this new camera, which at the time had the ability to film in reverse. And what they did is they had a plane fly overhead and they dropped peanut shells that were painted black on the cast and then they had the cast 
excessively rehearse on how to move backwards and make it look like forwards when they reverse it. And they shot everything backwards and they just played it backwards. So it looks like the peanut shells are going up, but none of the actors' movements are any goofier. And it's just yeah. an unbelievable magic if you, trick. If you Google this movie, that's probably the first image that comes up, which is kind of Richard Gere looking up as this, you know, swarm is kind of enveloping and him and Sam these, Shepard's these other waving. Figures. Yeah. 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 It's just, I was it's, like, it's, we a, gotta, it's an incredible, incredible shot. Dude, it's, it's one of the coolest shots I've ever seen. And the fact that they found this cool loophole of how to do it without special effects is great. And I just thought it would have been a sin to not mention that whole that whole bit is amazing. I do think the shots of the fire are a little excessive. Some, like We have like 45 seconds too much of that, but whatever. And then one of my favorite shots in the movie, too, is split second when gear crashes into the water at when he's been shot. It's a really quick shot, um, but it's haunting gut punch really strong and just the whole movie again is just unbelievable visually yeah i'll add in a couple of shots since we're just talking beautiful yeah shots. i mean you know i'm a guy who's just look i live in denver i'm here because of the mountains like mountains and vistas just that that's what my eye is attracted to and every single shot that they give of just the expansive landscape with these you know they had a lot of extras on this movie, just, you know, walking through the fields and doing their, you know, their business, you know, harvesting the wheat and, you know, the sh- every shot like that of like the caravans arriving and stuff is just like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. It's unbelievable. And, and the trains, of, all the trains. Well, that was what I was going to say. Yeah, but yeah. Speaking yeah, yeah. of crowd shots, the, the train sequence just, all the people on top of the train, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you pan down and, and it's literally Richard Gere and Brooke Adams on top of this fucking train. Oh, it's like, God. you can't fake that. And it just looks yeah. amazing. Yeah, it, it is unbelievable. Then think of that shot too. Remember when her friend who she's playing with, the daughter or the, the sister's playing with early mm-hmm. on in the movie, when she's boarding the train and a bunch of people are boarding the train at the time, she's kind of saying like, if you're not good, I'll come back and I'll give you shit about it. Blah, blah, blah. It's just, I'm like watching the shot. I'm like, Oh my God, the lighting is perfect. There's like 70 extras all in costume clambering out of the train at the same time as it's pulling out. I'm like, Holy hell. There's so many fucking shots in this movie where you told me about that YouTube series, Every Frame's a Painting, mm-hmm. that phrase is so fitting for this movie. Every shot, I'm just like, oh my God. How the hell did they get a hyperlapse of a plant growing? I don't know how they did that in the 70s. Insane. And it's just such an amazing visual experience that even if people are a little averse to slower movies, again, I'd say approach it with caution, but anyone who wants to have the courage to just throw it in and give it a shot, I would say fucking go for it because it is so visually stunning that it it really needs to be experienced i think it's so beautiful i yeah as you said early in the show i would be hesitant to recommend this to just anyone but if if you have any inclination to like based on what we've been saying in this episode in this episode if if that is sparking something in you to be like that sounds kind of interesting i I'd, I'd be interested to check that out definitely watch it it's a 90 minute movie. It's not like you're going to be, you know, it's not like, like Kurosawa where it's like, no, you're, you got to go all in and like really like just accept the fact that you're going to be in this world for a long time. 
this does not take up a lot of your day. Just throw it on, vibe with it for a while, let it sit with you and just drink it in. Try not to focus on like the traditional storytelling aspects that you might expect from most movies. Try not to focus on, on, you know, uh, just logic gaps or anything like that. Just, just let it be and, and let it wash over you. And you'll at the very least be like, wow, that's a beautiful movie. Yeah, dude. I, I really loved it. Thinking too of that shot of the, do you remember the shot of the house at dusk? Oh my God. Mm. So fucking beautiful. Every shot of the house. I, Every I shot was of obsessed the house. With. Just enamored. The shot, uh, the the shot that you mentioned, the locust swarming, the house is right in the background. It's it's one of the most beautifully framed shots I've ever seen. It's ridiculous, and for my first Terrence Malick experience, I just I'm very interested in seeing more of his stuff. I know that whether it's you or me, Tree of Life is going to get up on the board someday, um, and I, on my own time, I'll probably check out some of the others that you've already seen, like Badlands and Thin Red Line and stuff like that. Maybe I'll save one for us to do together. On as the show, as someone who loves American history, I really want you to watch The New World. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would, I'm sure I'll. Dig and you it. love and, Colin Farrell, and he's yeah. wonderful in that movie. Yeah, he's. I'm, and I want to see Christopher. Plumber, see if we can pull off not being furious at the, at the <laughs> production. Um, but yeah, um, really, really cool movie, man. And I'm, I'm glad that we got to see it and chat about it because it is just uh, very unique. And I loved it with open arms. I can see why it's not for everyone. But if you're curious, I say, like we said, give it a go. It's fucking cool. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you had that experience. I'm really, really glad that this connected with you because I could have seen this going this way or the opposite where it was just like, I, I, I don't understand why this is so beloved. Um, you know, like, like, cause I think like of the two of us, you are definitely far more focused on story and structure and, and character. And, and, you know, I'm definitely, you know, I get pigeonholed as the, vi- the visuals guy on the show, <laughs> which is fair. I definitely yeah, yeah. am. But we but, both care about the other two. <laughs> of course, of yeah, course. Yeah, I'm yeah. not trying to say that we're both yeah, no, only I, one no, I got thing you. or the other. But I'm just saying, like, knowing that about you, it made me question whether this would work for yeah. you or not. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad to hear that it did. Yeah, it was it was really great, really unique, and uh, and special. And yeah. I'm like, excited to see more of his stuff. He's still with us, right? I don't know if he's still Malik? working. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I heard a hidden life is is really great, and I I haven't checked that out yet, but that's his most nice. recent one. Fuck yeah, dude! All right, shall we put something new on the board? I believe it's your week. Absolutely. I was toying with a couple, and I think I know what I'm gonna do. But mm-hmm. I wanted to tell you there was one. I was excited about, and I did a little bit of sleuthing, not available to stream anywhere. It is, on, it is on YouTube. Um, so I'm just going to throw it out here now. We're not going to put it on the show, but it is Sometimes a Great Notion, which is my favorite book, and I know it was made into a film starring Paul Newman. I've always been interested to check it out, but then when I saw it, it wasn't really available, and it was like, all right, not that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch that on my own time and check it out because I'm, I'm curious. I want to put another fun one on the board, Drew. Okay. I, I like our balance. I like where we're at. But I'm in the mood to watch something a little goofy and a little risky. I don't know if it's going to be any good at all. But there is an iconic action film star whose movies I have never seen one of. And I was like, I got to see what's going on with this guy. Because for reasons unknown to me, I've just dismissed him. The movie star 
is Jean-Claude Van Damme. How much experience do you have with him? My mind immediately went to Jean-Claude Van Damme. Really? Okay, okay, cool. Why do, what do you know about him? I've seen Bloodsport and mm-hmm. had a ton of fun with it when I was younger. I haven't watched it in a long, long time. Uh, but other than that, I'm I'm not very well versed. Okay. The movie, because I did a little Google, is like what are considered some of his big ones. And there's this kind of controversial pick that is like that. The premise sounds interesting. Let's fucking go with this. Are you familiar with 1992's Universal Soldier? I am familiar with it in name only, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, let's let's yeah. do it. I got it some sort of action movie. It's got a sci-fi angle to it, I think. And Dolph Lundgren, Lundgren is also in it. And I just think it's going to be stuffed to the rafters with top brutes. I think it's going to be a blast. I think it's going to be a fun episode. It's a Roland I wanted Emmerich to do... movie. Yeah, I heard that too. And I was like, I, I kind of dig that director. And I thought about doing Hard Target, but I figured we did just do a John Woo movie. So maybe not right now. But if I dig this first John, Jean-Claude Van Damme dip, um, I would definitely consider putting Hard Target up. So anyway, I think it's going to be a fun one. I'm feeling it, some some goofiness. And then I think uh, my next one, I'll probably go artistic with it. But I, I'm in the mood for goof. It felt right to me. Yeah. Let's if get it, it feels up feels right, let's do it. Universal Soldier going on at number nine. So let's recap the board now. At number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. Number two, Akiru. Number three, M. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Universal Soldier. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, The Hateful Eight. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Dirty Harry. Number 17, Titan. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, The Turtle. Terminator. Terminator, let's check this thing, dude. The dot has spoken. What's it got for us? 11. Number 11 is a movie that was referenced earlier on the show. It's almost like the dart hurt us. The Hateful Eight. Now, I have an important question. I have an important question. Uh Are we watching the theatrical cut, the director's cut, or the extended cut? Because there are three cuts of this movie. My gut says theatrical, but it's your your pick, dude. What, What sounds good to you? I think you're right. As I'm looking at it, Netflix has both the super extended, basically miniseries version of this movie on Netflix, but it also has the theatrical edition um which is only going to be available until january 25th which is right around when this episode is going to come out so uh if you're hearing this now you might only have a week left to watch it it'll be close it'll be close but it's a big meal it's a big movie you should be able to find it you'll be able to find it oh absolutely i mean it's paid to rent elsewhere as well let's get it for free Um, if we can or free in air but yeah if you if you've got netflix which is the vast majority of planet earth at this point uh (laughs) you have an access you have access to watch this movie now so let's do theatrical cut love it dude love it dude hateful eight will be next week that is going to do it for our episode this week on days of heaven thank you so much for listening everybody please remember to rate review and give us a follow on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you like to listen if you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com follow us on instagram at dartboardmovienight.com 
Artwork for the show was created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Sorry, Mark. Later.